Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I work with Peace Catalyst here in the Washington, D.C. area. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Allie Bernison. Hello, everyone. I am Allie, and I'm with PCI in the Los Angeles area. By the way, if you enjoyed the Peace Catalyst podcast, please do us a favor and take some time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It just really helps boost our visibility and encourages others to give us a listen. Yeah, thank you, guys. Oh, so Allie, how is how was your Christmas? How was your New Year's? What's how's life? <laughs> yeah, life is good. I feel like as always in this current moment, I feel like after December 15, you just push or maybe not you, one, I I should just use I statements. I push things off to the new year. And so this particular week, I feel like I'm like catching up on things I said I would do like in the middle of December. So yeah, I I feel like this week I'm like a tad overwhelmed. However, my Christmas was great. Um, Had, you know, had definitely a restful time in Washington state with my mom. I had my very first white Christmas, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Nice. Never, never have I ever had snow on Christmas. So that was crazy. Um, That's awesome. Have you experienced a That's, white Christmas? Oh, yes. Well, I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So yeah, we've had white Christmases <laughs> for sure. Okay. Um, And it's like, this is what winter should be like, you know, there should be right. snow. Any Come good on. shows while you've been resting? Oh. <gasps> Great question. Um, we did watch several films, including okay, I rewatched Frozen and Frozen Two because oh yeah, they're great stories. I mean, mm-hmm. and especially Frozen Two, I think is a great peacemaking story because yes. you have yes, you have this kingdom that was kind of you know imperialistic with this indigenous community. And then in order to like heal what's been broken, they have to expose the truth from the past and then like reconcile and make things right. It's just beautiful. I think it's powerful. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very powerful story. It is. Yeah. yeah, that's such a good point. I haven't – I guess it was a few years ago now, the last time I saw that. But yeah. No, you're right. It is a great peacemaking story. Hmm. And I also have to plug a documentary that we watched um, called 14 Peaks. Okay. It's about a Nepalese man who decides to climb um, 14 of the highest peaks in the world within the course of seven months, which mm. is like crazy, apparently, <laughs> in in the climbing world. Like that's insane. Um, but he created this whole team of Nepalese men who are are Sherpas um, who typically guide like Western climbers up these mountains. And he wanted to create a team to show that like, um, it's not just like Western climbers that can do these Mm. amazing things, but like they do this on a regular basis and they help climbers from the West to do it. And so he wanted to kind of 
have that representation. And it was called the project that they did is called Project Possible. And mm. anyway, it's just it's really inspiring and um it's like a very compelling story and and powerful and like very gripping story. So mm. yeah, I highly recommend. <laughs> wow, I'm writing that. that down. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for sharing. That's totally yeah. up my alley. I'm I weirdly <laughs> love climbing documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> so inspiring and yeah okay I'm I'm like I'm this definitely is for you that up. yeah <laughs> cool. so Ali what is our peace quote for this week our peace quote is from Amanda Gorman and it is there is always light if only we're brave enough to be it that's so good yeah Amanda Gorman oh my gosh she's amazing. I think there's actually another line in that quote too really? that I forgot to add. Yeah. <laughs> it says, um, okay, so before it says, if we're only brave enough to be it, she says, right. if we're only brave enough to see it too. So we are still in the midst of our current series on Afghanistan where we are listening and learning from Afghans and those who are working alongside them for peace in Afghanistan and also locally. Um, So for this episode, we had some of our listeners submit questions for our guest. And um, you've all heard from this guest before, so get excited because she's a, a friend of the podcast. And so at the very end of the episode, um, we asked the questions that have been submitted. And so you might hear your question if you asked one. Yeah. And the guest that we're interviewing this week is Hernessa Fariad. Um, so you've all heard from her before on the podcast. And she's the head of outreach and interfaith at the Adams Center, which is local to Northern Virginia. And it's also the second largest mosque in the U.S. Um, and she's also the director of outreach for Multi-Faith Neighbors Network. And she's the music director for the Adams Beat Choir, which is the first mosque children's chorus in the U.S. Um, and her is also a local Muslim representative for Peace Catalyst International, and she's also a longtime friend and colleague of ours. Um, so we're just really grateful for her giving her time as well for this episode and honored to hear from her, especially because she's from Afghanistan herself. Um, she mostly grew up in Queens, New York, but she was born in Afghanistan and still has family there. Um, and she has been helping her fellow Afghans who are coming to the U.S. US locally, as well as helping her family who's still located there. So we're really looking forward to learning from her today and can't wait to hear what she has to say. Well, welcome back, Hernissa. It's such an honor to have you join us again on the podcast and really looking forward to hearing more about um, some of the work that you're doing locally with refugees from Afghanistan and also just your personal story and how everything has been impacting you. Thank you so much, Becca and Ali, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, Always having a conversation with you is something that I look forward to, Um, going back to our own friendship and our own work that we do together. It's really nice to talk about something that's meaningful, but also with some you know people that you're connected to on a different level. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. 
And, you know, it's it's always wonderful getting to, yeah, work with you and just see your face on screen is so nice. So <laughs> grateful that you're here. And we definitely are looking forward to getting into some questions that we have from our listeners. Um, but first, uh, Ali and I just had a few questions that we wanted to ask you about as well. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing to help Afghan arrivals through your mosque, the Adam Center, and how the community there has kind of like the local community from your your mosque has come around these refugees to support them and to help and what have those efforts looked like. And yeah, if you can just share a little bit about that. Sure. Um, I don't think I could say everything that, uh, that has been going on since August, um, just on this podcast, because there's so many moving elements, but I'm going to highlight some of the big things that we've done in order to help ameliorate the situations with the Afghan evacuees who have been coming into the United States since August 15th. I'm sure that everybody knows the issue and knows what's been going on, but because Virginia was the first transit point for the evacuees to come into the United States, we got the brunt of the workload and the inexperience of everything that ended up happening because we ended up having to learn things on the fly or move things on the fly. And that sometimes is a bit intimidating because you're put in a situation that you've never done this work before. So how do you go around it? How do you help these people? So I actually spent one day at Dallas airport translating for the COVID-19 testing group that had the evacuees coming in through with them and just seeing, um, some of them were SIV holders, some of them were green card holders, and some of them had nothing. And so grouping these people, I don't know how the U.S. government did that and what kind of measurements they use and how they were separating the people, but they did the best that they could given the circumstances that even for the United States government, this was a completely new shift. Because normally when people come here as refugees or through the SIV, they know months in advance that they're coming and the resettlement agencies have everything ready. So by the time they come here, their housing is set, everything is set for them. Now you have over 100,000 people coming in and no one's ready and you're low staffed and there is nowhere to go. So we can talk about that later when we talk about the resettlement agencies. But we started thinking about some of the needs that people uh, have obviously uh, at the bases and at the expo center where they were going through as a transit point then just the mere necessities of everybody's uh, daily lives that we have, right? So we would need diapers and formulas for the babies because there were a lot of babies coming in, um, clothing. Some people just literally had the clothes on their back and the shoes on, on their feet. Um, they were pregnant women. There were people with health issues. There were people who died at the bases. There were people who died at the transit points. So now we have to figure out um, – funeral services. And we started the Afghan um, evacuee relief fund at Adams and we collected money to help the Afghans in different situations. So some of them needed hotel stays. If they were in a medical situation, had to leave the base. So we covered their hotels, uh, stay for whatever, one or two weeks. Then there were people who came out or didn't go through the proper processes and they were left with nowhere to go. So we ended up helping them out temporarily as well. Uh, and then the funeral costs, we definitely helped out with those as well. There were people who were in senior citizens who passed away, who came to America for a 
brighter future than what they've lived with all their life only to come here and really never get to see America because they died at the base. They were pregnant women who were having babies. They they needed postpartum um, care, so we helped pay for a lot of their hotel stays afterwards. Afterwards, towards you know uh, somewhere close to the to hospital where they had the children. Um, then I started a coat drive in the beginning of October because I knew that was going to be an issue for the resettlement agencies, and that was my main focus. It wasn't um, the immediate care that people needed because I. After talking to people and seeing the number of people coming into that space, I said, well, there's way too many people here. I'm going to go to long-term because that's going to be the next couple of years. What everyone is doing right now is like three, four months, and then volunteer fatigue is going to hit. So let's focus on that. And so we, I went through helping with a lot of the things that people would need help in through their resettlement agencies. So I started a coat drive for four days in October, and I collected over 2,000 coats for women, men, and children. And 99% of those who brought the coats were uh, Christian churches from Maryland. Um, you know, kudos to the Episcopal uh, diocese who <laughs> arranged their network of, of churches to come and drop those off, and that was fantastic. And then, um, you know, we also did a uh, clothes drive and that I did uh, drop off close to Lutheran Social Services, which is the biggest resettlement agency here in the DMV. One of my pastor friends, uh, his church is 10 minutes down the road from them in in, um, Falls Church. And so I asked him if he's willing to uh, collect the the clothes and he said yes. So that was a great way for them to do that. And then LSS went and picked it up from them. And then, you know, the regular donations of gift cards, SIM cards, um, backpacks filled with stuff for the kids to go to school, just in the, you know, things that you and I would need on a daily basis, but we'd never think about. Um, so pretty much those were the things we, we took care of um, from the donations perspective. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing about that. Um, and I think it's incredible because, you know, like you're saying, it's the, the volume of, of arrivals coming from Afghanistan is so highly concentrated in this area. And I know I've been seeing your posts on Facebook and just so inspired by um, how y'all are coming together to help people coming to the U.S. So that's incredible. Thank you. Yeah, we're trying the best that we can. It's definitely a new experience, but for some reason, all the Afghans want to either come to Northern Virginia, Texas, or California. <laughs> for some reason, don't see Wyoming as, as an interest to go there, but we're trying to tell them that it's only for three months. Just go get your paperwork, get your benefits, and then you can move. Coming here, mm-hmm. you're going to be on a wait list. So that's another problem that is constantly having to have these conversations. And mm-hmm. You know, you're given families sometimes situations where they're, they need help and you try to give them to the right people so that they can get help. But I have, a, have one family that I'm working right, with right now. They're just uh, two girls, sisters who are married to two brothers here in Virginia. One of them came on the plane with the aunt and the, nephew and the brother. And, you know, they're DV victims. And so they had to leave. And so they've kind of been my second family that I'm taking care of. And so, you know, we can talk about that as well in terms of what people are actually going through when they're coming here and what they feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned as as you were sharing about the Lutheran Social Services 
and how, you know, they're a, they're a pretty large and powerful resettlement agency. Um, but I, we want to hear more about um, your, your work with Lutheran Social Services and um, caught wind that you have been selected to be on the board. So, so how, did, how did that process, how did you get there? And um, yeah, how exactly are you partnering with them specifically? And that's a great question. Thank you. So way before this, a couple of years ago, I was working with Lutheran Social Services through my job at Adams because they are a resettlement agency and majority of the people that were coming through them were Muslim. So they wanted to kind of know how to deal with them. There's cultural sensitivity issues and topics that they needed to know. So I was talking with them on that. And Kristen, who uh, is the new CEO, she's been in that position for a year now. Uh, I did a whole webinar with her and we talked about just what's going on in terms of human you know, resources. And this is way before Afghanistan issue came up. So when this issue started happening, uh, you know, we, I talked to Kristen and we're like, what's going on? How can we help? So I told them like, I can do this. I can do that. It was more like on a voluntary basis. And she told me to come up with a project to bring um, Afghan Americans to be volunteers through Lutheran social services, because they know the language, they know the culture. It's just easier to have Afghans who grew up in the United States to be part of the process. So we started the Afghan project, which has three tiers to it. One is the donation team. One is a home search team. And the other one is the uh, resettlement agency liaison team. And I had like over 55 people together in these teams. And Basically, in the beginning, it was extremely active and people were trying to do things and help out. But of course, volunteer fatigue is a reality and that did set in. But nevertheless, if they ever need anything, LSS can contact them and they can come help translate or move things around or take donations to different people. And that's what's been happening on that end. And they realized that they really did not have a a Muslim female on their board and they didn't have an Afghan on their board. So they asked me to come and join their board. And um, I had to think about it for a couple of days because I didn't want to put myself into something that I wasn't going to be able to give 100%. But I, you know, worked my schedule around and I said that, no, I need to be in this because there needs to be an Afghan voice in there. Um, And so I took the position of being on the board and it's been really uh, eye opening in terms of seeing what goes on, you know, from the outside and people might look at the resettlement agencies and all they can think about is, well, you're getting paid, you have staff, why are you taking so long? But what they're not realizing is that resettlement agencies are not used to this type of influx of people coming in overnight. For instance, normally LSS NCA puts about 500 people, resettles 500 people in the DMV area a year. (laughs) And they had about, let's say, 50 employees. In a matter of four months, they've resettled 2,000 people. So they've resettled four years of work within four months and to expect them to be like on their game and fast track is impossible. The other issue is they went from 50 staff to 65 staff to hundred staff, and they're now going to go to 150 staff, right? So they're working with what the government's giving them and they're working with that. And then the other issue is that the government is paying them in increments. They're not giving them all of the funding at once. So if you don't have the funding, you can't really hire everyone and say, hey, come work, we'll pay you like three months down the road. It's not going to happen. 
right? And so they're very uh, driven in the work that they're doing. They have on their websites employment opportunities for anybody who wants to apply. I'm always encouraging the Afghan American community to apply in those positions because you can actually get in there and help and not need a translator for the most part. And so that's another issue that has been definitely coming across a lot of people and asking me questions. And I lay it to them straight. I said, look, as an Afghan myself, as an American, I can understand your point of, of view and your frustration, but you have to also understand what we're dealing with. And then when I explain it, the issues with them, then they understand that, oh, okay, that makes sense. They need more help. It's like, yes, they need more help. So if you're not working and you're looking for a job, go to their website, apply for the job, or say that you have some specialty that you can volunteer in and they'll, they'll bring you on. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think it's um, such a beautiful example of, like you're saying, having the knowledge and the skills and the background to be able to really help, um, but then also providing that representation to Afghans to see that, hey, like I'm from Afghanistan too, and I speak your language and I have a similar cultural background so we can connect on that level. Yeah. And they like that. They feel more at home when they see someone from their own background who can speak their language who can guide them through everything that's going on because it is a scary place to be, especially for women who don't have a male counterpart here. They're even more intimidated and it's not an issue of women can't handle things, but they're coming from a area that women don't really do things by themselves or um, are encouraged for the most part to do things by themselves. So they're learning all of these new ways of living here in the United States and for them to see a familiar face with a familiar language it just makes you more at ease. Yeah, absolutely. And going off of that, I remember there was a young Afghan woman that you had befriended and were kind of walking alongside um, throughout her pregnancy and even through giving birth. And I remember seeing you were raising money for her on Facebook and asking people to give donations. Um, could you share a little more about that story and how you came to know this woman and um yeah. And what has that looked like walking with her and her baby, now her baby? <laughs> yeah. So um, it's just the weirdest thing that happened. She's actually one of the, the family members that I just told you about who are DV victims, domestic violence victims. She's 20 years old. She was eight months pregnant and had to leave the house with her sister who just recently arrived. And she had only been here a year and a half. She doesn't speak English. And um, they went to the police station and the police station called Adam Center because we're the closest mosque in the area and asked if there's anyone who can come and help because they don't speak English and they need, they need help. So they called me, I'm the only staff member who's Afghan. So I, luckily they speak Farsi and I speak Farsi. So I went and I picked them up from the uh, police station and through Adams, we paid for their hotel for a week. And then I got them into LSS because the sister had come in as a parolee. And so, you know, just starting them off with their benefits, we got her to get her Medicaid for the baby and her. And, um, you know, I didn't think that ever I was going to be in the delivery room, to be honest with you. I don't do well in medical situations. So <laughs> I was like, I don't know if this is a good idea. <laughs> I took her to her uh, uh, checkup because on her due date and then she was fine. And then the next day she went into labor. And so I had to like rush, pick her up, take her to the hospital. And they're like, oh yeah, she's like seven centimeters. I was like, already? Like it's her first baby. <laughs> Normally like, I mean, I remember my first, it was like three days of <laughs> contractions. Like this is just too fast. 
<laughs> so luckily, you know, she had her bag ready and we had a uh, fundraised for her on Facebook through Adam, through Amazon and, you know, getting her new stroller clothes for the baby and all this stuff. So, you know, thank God she had all the new stuff that she needed. And so in the delivery room, there I was like translating for her, helping her out. And so I normally get a little fainty in, in hospitals. Um, and so I was fine until they told me to like hold her in front of like go in front of her and help her when they were putting putting the epidural and I, I saw the needle I was kind of like whoa yeah this is just a little too much so my head started spinning and I'm like yeah I need to sit down so then they started taking care of me <laughs> and she's just like in pain I'm like you can wait I'm about to pass out <laughs> so they bought me some juice and stuff and so then I felt better and it came time to like push the baby and so I was like by her head, just translating. The doctor's like, you need to come and hold her leg. You're her support. And to me, I'm like, oh, wait, I don't I don't know if this is a good idea. So I was like, you know what? Just keep your eye on her, hold the leg and just translate because I don't need to see anything, right? <laughs> so I'm just looking at her and I'm translating like push, 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 breathe, push, push, push in like Farsi while they're telling me. And, you know, she did a great job and the baby came and it was, you know, just such a beautiful sight to be a part of. And then they asked me if I wanted to cut the umbilical cord. And I was just like, oh, wow. I never in my wildest dream thought I would ever cut anyone's umbilical cord. Um, but there I was, I cut the umbilical cord and baby Sosan is thriving. She's doing great. Um, she's such a cute baby. So she's been dubbed my quote unquote granddaughter um, because uh, the mother is technically the same age, a little bit younger than my eldest daughter. So um, technically she could be my granddaughter. <laughs> um, but it's just a fascinating story to be in this room and to have had that experience and to be part of this family's process of what they're going through and getting settled here in the United States, getting them their benefits. They, they literally ask me for everything and I'm okay with that. Um, I have some other friends who are helping out here and there, but if they ever need anything, they always call me and they're always so appreciative and, and uh, cognizant and really expressing their, their gratitude all the time and saying, well, you know, what you've been doing with us for the past three, four months, people wouldn't even do past three, four days. And for me as a woman, and, you know, I'm a single mom myself, uh, raising four kids by myself, I know exactly what that's like. And I would never want to put somebody else in that situation. And if I can help, I'm going to step in and do the best that I can. And so things are moving along for them. But yeah, that baby's growing. And there's always great, um, work that can be done when people are very giving. So I'm, I'm appreciative of that. That's so beautiful. Yeah, I'm sure that meant so much for her to have you there and translating and just being a support and being present. That must have been such a huge blessing for her. Such a Yeah, she, she was very scared because she didn't know anything. And she always just kept saying, thank you so much for being here with me. And then I stayed overnight with her that first night because it's it's so daunting, right? Like just had a baby and you don't speak the language, you don't have support, and I didn't want her to feel alone. So I stayed with her and, you know, filled out all her paperwork to get the birth certificate for the baby, um, to get her her social security card, and just to like help in any which way I could in, in making sure that the baby's getting whatever it is that she needed. So, um, you know, it's, it's something that God puts in your way. And I'm an avid believer of, of that, that God always gives us opportunities to help people so that we can get closer to him. But it's upon us to actually take that um, 
opportunity and go with it. So I'm grateful myself for that. Yeah. Wow. What a, yeah, what a touching story to be able to help. And yeah, it just goes to show you like there's, there's such diversity in, in how you're partnering with Afghan refugees in your community. And it's, um, yeah, it, it doesn't look just one way, but it can just be through, you know, holding a hand and yeah, almost fainting in the yeah. <laughs> literally. It was just like I need juice something. <laughs> but it was like that the oddest time. It was like about the needles about to go in and here I'm like, oh yeah, so but thank God nothing happened. Wow. Wow. Well, we have also gotten some questions from our listeners. And so there are a couple questions that we would love to have your thoughts on. Um, So the first is from Keith, and he asks, how are things in Afghanistan now? What, What do we need to know? Well, right now, the biggest issue is humanitarian aid. Um, So there's a lack of food. Prices are very high and things are not coming in like they were because of everything that has happened. So Islamic Relief, which is a huge organization based here out of the U.S. that's um, going there. They're actually there right now helping distribute food and humanitarian aid to the locals. Um, If you follow Anwar Khan, he's there right now and he's posting pictures of the cold weather people not having food and there's snow and, you know, Afghanistan's winter can be brutal. It's not like here where the homes are heated the way they are. And so whatever we can do to help them um, from here would be greatly appreciated going through an organization that is trustworthy, that, you know, your money can actually go to help the people there from starving to death or freezing to death would be great. Like that is the basic necessity right now that they don't have. And it's sad to say that, we, we, the only thing we can do right now is just to send uh, money to to help as much as we can. I'm curious, um, Hernissa, are you aware of, is it difficult at all for humanitarian organizations to get into certain communities because of the Taliban regime? Or do you know if that's an issue or not? Well, well I heard right now they're pretty open with humanitarian aid coming in. Um, but I think they're being selective of who they're actually letting in. So Islamic Relief is definitely on the grounds. And um, I think their name speaks for itself. And, you know, Taliban probably felt that it was comfortable for, for them to come in and, and, and help out in that sense. So that's what they're doing. Um, they know that they need help. They know that they can't do this on their own, especially with everything that has happened. It's it's not a long-term transition. It was literally overnight and Unfortunately, they're not equipped to take care of the needs of the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, we have a another question from Anne, and she's asking, are there many Afghans still trying or hoping to get out of the country, both people who helped in the U.S. effort there, as well as Christians, and are there efforts still happening to try to bring them out now? There are a lot of people, including my own family members, who want to get out. They've all reached out to me, um, somehow thinking I have connections with Biden, uh, which I don't, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> and so <laughs> I told them the best thing they could do is get connected to one of the Virginia state senators who have been um, very vocal and trying to help. I know Tim Kaine was collecting a list. Um uh, Connolly was collecting a list as well. And so they were giving the list of people's name to the Department of State 
to get them issued some kind of visas. But again, that list is so long and no one knows when those people are going to get out. There are people who have uh, special immigration visas to the United States that have not been able to get out. I'm not sure the number. I'm sure that it's dwindling, but again, I don't know the exact numbers of how many there are. They have visas to come to the United States, but they weren't able to get on the flights. And then there are a few um, U.S. citizens also who were not able to make it out in the first uh, couple of trips out of Afghanistan in August. As far as Christians are concerned, so the Christian community really isn't that big in Afghanistan. It's 99.9% Muslim. And, um, but, you know, I think what matters here right now is not faith, but more humanity, regardless of what somebody preaches or what they practice or what they believe in the mere concept of us knowing that everyone has a right to live and everyone has a right to practice their faith and everyone has a right to dignity. We have to be a force together to advocate for those people. So it doesn't matter what faith they are in Afghanistan. For me, I really don't care if someone coming in is Muslim or not. If they need help, I'm going to help them as much as I can because that's what my faith teaches me and that's the humanity that is within myself that I need to be able to advocate for them because these things take their turn everywhere all around the world, right? It's not us today, but it could be us tomorrow. Right. And we would want other people to help us as well, because they would see our example from history that the United States helped people, regardless of their faith, that the people in Afghanistan, regardless of their faith, were taken care of. And so we're going to do the same thing because you want to reciprocate that in, in, in its way, because it's a beautiful thing to see. Right. When you see people from different faith groups jumping in. And I have to say that the Jewish and Christian community in here in the Nova area have just done a phenomenal job from my own personal experience in, in helping people out. This family that I told you about, these two DV victims, uh, the brother and the aunt came, they ended up in a uh, military base in New Mexico. We were able to wait for their paperwork to get done and fly them out to the DMV to be together with the two girls because once she had the baby, she needed somebody in the house who had experience to help her. So the aunt, it was as a mother, her children are back in Afghanistan, she was able to help her. Because for me, I'm thinking, well, you're 20 years old, how are you going to wash the baby? How are you going to feed the baby? You don't, you can't even take care of yourself. How are you going to take care of a baby? And so it was great that we were able to bring the aunt and the brother about 10 days before she had the baby. And so that was a, another help that we saw. And then we collected funds specifically for this family to help them pay their rent for the next year. A majority of that funding came from my Christian friends and my Jewish friends. So again, it's the humility and, and the humbleness and the that care that we have within us as human beings that I, I saw manifest itself into helping everybody. Yeah, you as a follow-up to Anne's question, you mentioned um, your own family members. I I'm curious, you know, how how often are you speaking with them? How how are they doing? Um yeah, that's a great question. So in the beginning, it was a lot more because they were really trying to come here. They were doing, I was giving them the links. They were pay, filling out the paperwork, but they know that it's going to be a while if they even get on a list to get their visa to come to the United States. So the requests have died down, but they would like to leave because the situation now in Afghanistan is that everyone's afraid of what's going to happen because they remember 
what they went through and they don't want to go through that again. Although the Taliban have said that things are going to change, but people need to see that. And so I hope that they stick to their word and I hope that they come through with taking care of the needs of the people and doing things right and giving the people the basic necessities of what they need to a right to go to work and education for the girls and medical care and all these different things that are necessary for human beings to thrive. Wow. Um, so our third, our third question from one of our listeners is, I want to support Afghan refugees financially, but I'm not sure where to give. And that's from Debbie. Okay, that's a great question. So find a resettlement agency in your area that is working with directly with Afghan refugees, evacuees coming in. If you don't have one because they're not actually going to all the cities in the United States, I always uh, go to um, Lutheran Social Services, lssnca.org because I'm on the board and I know that they're doing the best they can with the funding that's coming in. So I have first view of, of all of that. And then if you want to help the Afghans in Afghanistan, go to islamicreliefusa.org, I think is their website. And you could donate to them so that they can help the Afghans. They have a section uh, on their website to help the Afghans in Afghanistan who are literally starving to death. And especially the women who are, who are widows and the children who are orphaned need our help there because they're literally on the streets begging for, for any type of help. I saw a picture the other day of a school teacher, highly qualified. She was literally on the street uh, with shoe shining material, uh, willing to shine shoes for money because she can't work. So think about that in the cold outside, a female alone in a not so safe environment. Um, the least we can do is help them at least get food on the table. So if you want to help overseas, go to Islamic Relief USA. If you want to help locally, you can look for a resettlement agency you know, close to you, or you can go through Lutheran Social Services, NCA, because we have a lot of Afghans who are coming in the Northern Virginia area. That's great. Thank you so much, Hernissa. And we're so honored to be able to have you share everything. It's so insightful. And, you know, just knowing the, the background and the knowledge that you have and also your personal story is really special. So Thank you so much. Of course. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, guys, and for your support and for everybody else who's listening who wants to help out and can understand the plight of the Afghan people right now because it's been 40-plus years. Wow. That was an incredible conversation. Um, just really humbled to hear how Hernessa has been coming alongside refugees locally and especially with um, that woman that she, you know, walked through childbirth with. I'm just incredibly moved and touched by that story because, um, yeah, it's just such a, a cool, beautiful example of being present with somebody as they're walking through Um through that change and through that, I'm sure, very scary experience if she didn't have a friend there to, you know, translate and be a support and right. um, and be there with her. So I'm, yeah, incredibly touched by that. Yeah. Yeah, me too. What a moving story. And just, I, I think something I was thinking about while she was talking was just how her own experience and expertise and an insight into the culture um, has 
really been such an asset, you know, to the places and the organizations that she's partnered with and the people that she's befriended, how she has like this, this special window into um, the culture and the people and just how, how God's used that, you know, um, this isn't necessarily like a profound concept, but just us all carrying our own just coming from different, such different places and having different experiences that, that can be used and repurposed to like form particular connections. Um, even if those, even if our past experiences have been painful, how that can kind of be like, how that can be used in, in like a positive and powerful way. Yeah. That's such a good point. Cause I, I think it creates that kind of empathy, like that, her and Nessa can empathize with this woman because of her own experiences and kind of seeing that, yeah, she knows what that feels like and she wants to, um, to be there with her. And I think that empathy is so key in these situations of right. coming alongside people. And yeah, that's such a great point. Yeah. 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 I was, yeah, I was wondering how, and I, I wish I would have asked her, but I guess I can in the future. Wondering how her her own experience and knowing, you know, knowing that she still has family members in Afghanistan who are struggling in various ways. I wonder how that affects her current work um, and her mm-hmm. current relationships with families and individuals resettling in, in her area. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, we were talking a bit about this before we started recording, but just having to hold pain and joy kind of at the same time and, you know, seeing, um, seeing families and individuals come to the States under such extreme, like absolutely unfathomable circumstances. Um, but, and so there, there might be like a certain level of hope or a feeling of newness, Um, But then also at the same time, carrying such pain and then, you know, knowing that she still has family members in Afghanistan, just like, I don't know, I I wonder how that is just holding both of those. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine, like, what that feels like. And I think, but then again, we all have experiences with, like, pain and finding joy in the midst of pain and suffering. Um, And I think it kind of reminds me of our peace quote a little bit, like Mm -hmm. seeing the light by Amanda Gorman, um, seeing the light and then being the light, because I think that's what her Nissa is doing. You know, Mm -hmm. she's seeing light in the midst of darkness. And then she's also being a light to those who've come from a really difficult, dark place. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that's that's such an incredibly important point about – yeah, being able to hold like pain and joy together in in the midst of everything that's going on and um, that sort of, I don't know, I don't want to say it's a tension because I think they do kind of work together in a way, but Mm -hmm. um, sort of a tension. Yeah. Right. Right. Hmm. But overall, just really amazed at her efforts and the work she's been doing locally. Um, And I think I really love her advice about how we can support um, efforts both, you know, in our own neighborhoods, but then also in Afghanistan directly by, you know, donating to Islamic Relief USA or the other organization she said. 
and I've been seeing actually Anwar Khan, who's the president, he's there in Afghanistan now. And I've been seeing on Facebook him posting pictures of them handing out food and supplies and clothes and things. Mm-hmm. So, really? um, yeah, so it's really, really powerful to see that um, and to know that there are people on the ground um, giving that that assistance um, and providing those resources. So, Right, right. Yeah. And then her other important um, encouragement to just do a bit of research literally after our call, I mean, 10 seconds of research to find for, for me, like the resettlement, local resettlement agencies near, near where I live in LA. Um, and if you do want to give or, or volunteer contribute in some way, like that being a great place to start. And I was shocked to, um, yeah, to see, oh my gosh, that's like 10 minutes from my house. And I've seen that place before. And I actually didn't know that that's, that's the work that they're currently doing. So, um, yeah, so I really appreciated that encouragement as well. Cool. That's awesome. I love it. Grateful for her, Nissa. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more information about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thanks everyone so much. Bye.